If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26, it's where we find ourselves this Lord's Day as we continue through the book of Genesis and our study here at Bloomfield. I want to let you know as you're turning there uh, to make sure you mark your calendars for next Sunday evening. We'll be having our next members meeting and we're going to have a dessert fellowship and so we're inviting everybody to bring a dessert out and we'll go through some church business and then just have a time of fellowship. That'll be next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. And uh, if you're not a member of the church, we invite you to come to that as well and kind of see how we conduct our business and have a time of fellowship with us. But that'll be next Sunday night. Uh, For today, we are continuing through Genesis and looking at Genesis chapter 26. If you've been with us, you know that we've looked much at the life of Abraham and at his walk of faith. And now Abraham has passed and we're looking at his son Isaac and Isaac's sons Jacob and Esau. And as we look at them, we'll continue to see the struggles to walk by faith. And today, particularly, we'll see how some of the same stumbling blocks that were there for Abraham, we see very much in the life of his son Isaac. So we're going to look at Genesis 26, 1 through 11 today. If you would, out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand if you can, and we will read through this passage. This is what God's Holy Word says to us. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, least the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought least I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word, and in Jesus' name, we pray you would do in our lives today what you have done and the lives of people for generations, and what we trust that you will continue to do in the lives of those who follow you until Christ's return, that you would use this word to transform our lives. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We may have noticed I titled today's sermon like, Father Like Son. And that's an expression that's been around for some time. In fact, the earliest written expression of that was a couple hundred years ago and it was used to describe how the appearance of a son was like the appearance of a father. 
Uh, we use that expression all the time now to talk about perhaps how a child has its father's or mother's eyes or has certain looks, but we also use it to describe behavior about how a, a child sometimes behaves like the parents do, how they emulate that behavior, or how perhaps they behave in such a way that reminds the others of their parents. I know in my house, whenever our kids are into mischief or trouble, it's a reminder of me. My wife will look at me and say, how does it feel to watch yourself grow up? I assume she's talking about through the children, not that I'm still growing up, but we can see behavior in our children that immediately triggers us to think about the parents. We can even see uh, physical appearance things. Well, oh, they look just like their mom, they look just like their dad. That triggers us to think of the parent. As we read Genesis 26 today, there's a trigger here, there's a reminder here for us of Isaac's father Abraham. We can look to Isaac in this passage and perhaps we're not going to say, oh look, he has his father's looks. What we would say is, look, he has his father's depravity. He has his father's sin. Uh, He is inclined to sin in the same way as his father Abraham. The question then is why? Well, we know the, the big answer to that. The Scripture tells us that all of us are inclined to sin in general, and it is because of our forefather, Adam. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sins. Because of the sin in the garden with Adam and Eve, we inherit a sin nature. You don't have to sit down with your kids to teach them that. You don't have to have lessons on, okay, let me teach you today how to sin. Now that comes naturally. What you do have to teach them is how to obey. What you do have to teach them is about the gospel. What you do have to teach them is about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And I think those are some of the lessons we can even see in this passage today. See, we don't have to teach our kids or those who come behind us or those young in their faith, we don't have to teach them about depravity, but we do need to teach them what does it look like to walk in faith. And so as we walk through this passage today, I want to highlight some of those things that I think we need to be mindful of and we need to make sure we're teaching others, those who come after us in faith, our kids, our grandchildren, but not just our biological families, those who are young in the faith, those who are coming into our church. These are the things we need to teach them these are the things we need to learn from God's word beginning with the first point I've put in your notes there lesson number one you can trust in the faithfulness of God you can trust in the faithfulness of God we have talked much about what it means to see the faithfulness of God already in Genesis and how time and time again how people are not faithful and yet God is faithful We've talked about the need to trust in God. Well, we need to teach that to others as a lesson. We need to help others understand the importance of trusting God, of depending on God, of when all else is lost, realizing that God cares for His people and God is faithful to His people. We're reminded of the importance of this lesson as we look at what's going on in Isaac's life. Now, chronologically, Genesis 26, if you remember Genesis 25 right before this, we had the whole Esau selling his birthright and that exchange between Isaac's sons. Chronologically, most commentators believe that Genesis 26 actually probably came before that when the boys were probably young, maybe soon after they had been born, is what happens in Genesis 26. 
what we know in verse 1 is that there was a famine in the land. Now that reminds us that there was another famine. In fact, the, the writer here, Moses, lets us know there was a famine in the land, not the famine from the days of Abraham. If you remember in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was called to come out and follow God, there was a famine in the land. And so Abraham then went to Egypt. That was not a good decision for Abraham. Because in Egypt, he was then tempted to tell a lie, a lie that we see Isaac telling here. He was scared that the Pharaoh was going to take his life. And so he lied and said to the Pharaoh that Sarah, his wife, was really his sister. He does the same thing again in Genesis 20 when he too is in Gerar and he too is with an Abimelech. And we'll visit that in just a moment. But the issue here comes down to an issue of trust. Why did Abraham go to Egypt in the first place? He went there because he was scared, he was fearful, and he was fleeing. We don't see Abraham in Genesis 12 modeling faith. See, God had told Abraham he was going to take him to a land of provision. And he's journeying him through that land. And as he does, all of a sudden there's no provision. There's a great famine. Now for most of us, if there's a great famine in Nelson County in Kentucky, if we are without food and there's food a couple of states over, it would make sense for us then to go get the food and bring it back here. So we read something like this and we think, what's the big deal? I mean, Isaac's just trying to get food for himself and his family. The big deal is God has called Isaac like he did his father Abraham, to be in a certain location. His promise is connected to this land. And he's told him through his father he's going to provide. And when Isaac makes the decision to go down towards Egypt, he's doing the same thing that his father Abraham do to go down towards Egypt. You see, Egypt in the Scripture so often stands as a land that is converse, that is opposite to what God would have people do. It stands as a pagan land that is attractive to the eyes, and yet there's much sin that occurs there. It's a land that to God's people will represent captivity and slavery. For us today, Egypt is captivity to sin. And so, as Isaac is being lured to Egypt, he is being lured to sin, and he's being lured to not trust in God's faithfulness. And here's the question that may arise. Did Abraham ever talk to his son Isaac about the dangers of going to Egypt? See, Abraham learned a painful lesson when he went to Egypt. He was rebuked by a pagan pharaoh. He was put in a place where he then jeopardized the promise and the plan of God by giving his wife Sarah over to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's harem. That would have left a mark on Abraham's life. Probably a mark that he wasn't very proud of. A time in his life where he was tempted, where he went towards that temptation, but he had to repent and turn from it. And so you would imagine then that at some point, Abraham would sit down with Isaac and say, Listen, son, at some point there may be a famine in the land. At some point, son, you may be tempted to flee. You may think that the grass is literally greener on the other side. You may see something that pulls you over here, but son, listen to me. Don't go to Egypt because there's nothing good there for you. Now, we don't know if Abraham ever had that conversation, but I think 
the text would infer that he probably did not. Because his son Isaac does exactly what his father Abraham did in a time of famine. And so it's not his father Abraham who teaches him this lesson. It's God who says to him, don't go to Egypt. You see, God comes to Isaac, in the midst of his travels, when he's there at Gerar with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and the Lord says to him, literally, don't go to Egypt. This was something your father should have told you. But he didn't. But I'm here to tell you, Isaac, do not go there. And then he tells Isaac some familiar things to us. Some things that he had told his father Abraham. He tells him about his covenant promises. He tells him that he's going to show him a land. He's going to sojourn in this land. But then God says something to Isaac that's unique. God says something to Isaac that we do not have a record of God saying to Isaac's father, Abraham. In the midst of calling him to stay out of Egypt, in the midst of telling him about these covenant promises, he says these very significant words. Isaac, I will be with you. You. Why is that significant? Because, friend, that phrase will now occur throughout the Scripture and the history of God's people. When they are tempted to wander, when they are fleeing from trusting God, when they are faithless, we will see constant reminders to them of God saying, I will be with you. It will take us all the way to the New Testament and to the birth of Jesus Christ, and to the revelation that is given that says, His name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why is that important? Because friend, you and I have come and will come to places in our life where we feel isolated and we feel alone. Where we feel like nobody understands what we're going through. Sometimes in our sin where we will feel so distant from God that we will think He doesn't even want me. Sometimes we'll feel distant from God's people. Other times just in pain and suffering where we will feel alone and isolated. And God says to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, you are not alone and you are not isolated and you are not abandoned. I am am with you. See, we can't say that to one another because we are fallen people. I will disappoint so many people. So many people will disappoint you. Some of you bear the scars of disappointment in your life where friend, family member, child, that they have disappointed you. They have left you. There are strained relationships between you. But we serve a God who says, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And we're reminded of that important truth when we see God coming and speaking to Isaac here. God is saying to Isaac, Isaac, you don't need to go to Egypt because there's nothing in Egypt for you. You need to trust in my faithfulness. And yet we'll see Isaac will still struggle to do this. Which brings us to point two in your outline there. Another lesson we need to embrace and that we need to pass on. You cannot trust in the strength of your own faith. You notice there I put strength in quotations. It's, it's a good thing to be strong in your faith. 
The danger comes when you trust in your strength rather than your faith. The danger comes when we think that we've somehow arrived in the Christian life where we're above or beyond temptation or sin. The the danger comes when we think that somehow we're strong enough that we can take on anything. The Scripture reminds us that it's often at those very points that we fail. We know a bit about Isaac's faith up to this point. We've seen him have great faith. We've seen him trust God. We've seen him do what his father Abraham did not do when faced with the issue of infertility with his wife. He goes to the Lord and he just pleads with the Lord and he prays to the Lord. That's something we didn't see Abraham do with Sarah. Abraham more would kind of complain to the Lord about it. And so we've seen Isaac exercise faith. We don't know a lot about his faith beyond that, but we can infer that he probably sees some strength there, and yet, his very strength, he is weak. And we see that weakness in his sin as we continue through this chapter. See, it says that as he settles there in Gerar, he tells a familiar lie. The text says he's here in the presence, the the land of Abimelech. You'll remember from last time Abimelech's name came up that Abimelech is a title more than a name. And so this isn't necessarily the same Abimelech as his father Abraham dealt with. This would be a successor or probably a couple of successors later. Much like the title Pharaoh for the Egyptians, the title Abimelech for the Philistines would be their king. He's fearful because it's customary in this day. He knows that he's at threat in his day because he has a beautiful wife and he's in a foreign land, a pagan land, the land of the Philistines, where they don't worship the God he follows. He knows that his life can be taken so that his wife can be brought in as another wife of one of these men. And knowing this then, he responds in fear. And again, the question arises. Is this ever something his father Abraham talked to him about? See, Abraham's legacy is one of faith, but it's also one of faithlessness at times. And one of the most faithless moments we see in Abraham's life occurs twice. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. In both of those situations, Abraham lies and says that Sarah is not his wife. In both of those situations, he puts the plan of God, the promise of God at jeopardy. And in both of those situations, he is rebuked for it. You would think then, at some point, Abraham would have sat down with his son Isaac and said, Isaac, listen to me. You're going to be tempted, son. Perhaps one day, you know how it is in the land we live in, one day you're going to be in a foreign place, and by God's grace, you're going to have a beautiful wife. And you're going to be tempted to lie about her. You're going to be tempted to say she's not your wife. Son, listen to me. Son, son, look at the scars in my life. Don't do it, son. Don't do it. You, you can trust in God. He's going to take care of you. Again, I don't know that Abraham ever had that conversation with his son Isaac. Which is ironic because you think about the conversations he did have with Isaac. You think about... Abraham standing there with a blade in his hand over his son's body about to drop it on his son and God provides a sacrifice. And surely in his worship, Abraham would have said to Isaac, Isaac, did you, did you see that? Did, did you see how God miraculously provided, son? That's the God we serve. 
And, and he, he did this. Abraham was in that experience with Isaac, so why wouldn't he tell him about these other things? Well, I think it could be that it's, it's much easier for us to talk to others about God performing miracles than it is to talk to others about our own failures and sin and struggle. It's a lot easier to talk about, look at what God did, than it is to talk about, look at how messed up I am. And friends, let's be honest, we're messed up people. And there's a great, great danger here. The danger is that if we aren't real with others about how messed up we are and what our struggles have been and the temptations we've dealt with, if we don't have those conversations, then we are setting the next generation up to fail. Because the enemy doesn't have new schemes. The enemy's doing the same thing in the same ways today that he was doing a millennia ago. He's doing the same stuff now that he was doing in the garden with Adam and Eve. He is seeking to malign and destroy, and he's doing it the same ways. Satan's playbook only has a few plays in it. And when we aren't honest about the sin and struggle in our life, when we don't sit down with our kids at an appropriate time, at an appropriate age, and say, listen as I tell you about the sins of your father and your mother, and listen to when we didn't trust God, then we are setting them up to fail. And we're setting them up to get to a point in their life when they're going to struggle with the same sin we did and we never talked to them about it and then they're going to feel even more isolated and alone because they're going to think they're the only one who've ever dealt with this sin. And in our pride, if we don't talk to them, we're just going to set them up to fail in that very way. And I can't help but think that's part of what happens here with Abraham and Isaac. These are two great blemishes on Abraham's life. And it doesn't appear that he had much of a conversation with them with Isaac. And in doing so, he didn't do Isaac any favors. See, I know how it is as a parent, and I know that we're tempted with this thought that if I tell my kids about my sin, then they're going to want to go out and do it. They're going to want to go out and do it anyways. <laughs> you need to tell them how to respond to it. And you and I need to tell them about the grace of God and His outstretched arm and that they can't outrun Him. And you and I need to tell them what it looks like to live a life of repentance and faith and how God takes us as we are and He redeems us. And you need to be reminded of what God reminds Isaac of here. Notice God doesn't say, Isaac, I'm going to bless you because you're just so good. <laughs> Isaac, you've done such a great job, let me give you a blessing. No, he says, I'm going to bless you, Isaac, because I made a deal with your dad. <laughs> and think about that for a second. God makes this covenant with Abraham, and who was that contingent on? It was contingent on God. God is the covenant keeper. And that's why when Isaac... When Abraham fails and when he trusts and when he fails and when he trusts, the covenant's intact because God's the one who keeps it. And friend, that's the same in our life today. It doesn't matter if you've wandered or strayed or right now, even in your sin, you don't want to hear what God's Word has to say. You are the one moving away, not God. Now you may be moving closer to sin and trying to move farther away from Him, but you can't outrun Him. And you can't get to a place He can't get you. That's why he says over and over and over again through his word, through his people, where can we go that God's not there? 
You go to the farthest reaches of the farthest place in the earth, and God's there. He's everywhere. And that's good news for us. Because He's there with His grace, and His mercy, and His love. And He's calling us to walk in faith with Him. But we have to be very careful as we do that, that we don't get to a point where we're so prideful, where we feel so strong, that we think we and others cannot fall and cannot sin. Because we see sin over and over again in God's Word, and we certainly see it here in Isaac's life. And you'll notice who it is that calls him out on his sin. Again, it's a pagan ruler. (laughs) It's Abimelech. Who the text doesn't say anything about him being a follower of God. It says he's the king of the Philistines. And yet, he's the one calling Isaac out in his sin. I find this interesting as well. While Abraham probably did not have a conversation with Isaac about the dangers of lying about your wife, I think Abimelech's predecessors had a conversation with him. Because you'll notice here, when Isaac comes with Rebekah to this land, nobody wants to marry her. Now think about Abraham's day. Immediately Sarah's married. Even when Sarah's really old and they go here, she's married. Or taken into a home. But here it doesn't happen. And I think it doesn't happen because Abimelech probably had been warned by his predecessors, listen, be on guard against this. Because if he was told that lesson and he learned from it, he would know that a great calamity would come to his people. And that's exactly what he rebukes Isaac with here. He says, how could you do this? What is it you have done? One of our people could have married your wife and then bad things would have happened. And and notice how it is even though she's his wife in the first place. It's not because Isaac admits to it. He's comfortable in his sin. It says he's there for a long time. But it's Abimelech looking out of his window one day. And the text says in verse 8, he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah. Now, side note. In the Hebrew here, there's more going on than laughing. This word laughing is they're laughing because of other things that are happening. And so, kids have fun, but don't laugh. It's pretty much the lesson here. There's beyond laughter going on. And Abimelech sees it, and Abimelech knows that he has been duped, and Abimelech goes and he confronts it. And when he does this, he puts light on Isaac's sin. And that's exactly what needs to happen with our sin. We don't need to sin and stay in darkness and in isolation. We need to be exposed in our sin to God's Word. And God gives great promises in regards to that. If you will confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say if you confess little sins. <laughs> if you confess anything, He's faithful and just. If we will call on the name of the Lord, we read in Romans 10, we will be saved. Why? Because we confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the hope the Gospel brings us, which is the last point that I put there in your notes. Number three, the lesson we need to live by and we need to pass on. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. Isaac's hope did not rest in who his father was. Isaac's hope rested in who his father's God was. You see, this story is a reminder to us of so many stories we read like it in the Old Testament. Where you have Isaac, the husband who out of fear for his life is willing to exchange the safety and the welfare of his bride so that he might be okay. 
and we're reminded that the Scripture takes us to a place where there is a groom who does not forsake his bride. Where there is Jesus Christ who the Lord says is the groom and we the church are His bride. And given the opportunity to save Himself, to protect Himself and forsake His bride, He lays down His life so that His bride might have eternal life. And that is the good news the Gospel gives us, friend. Because no matter what someone says to you, people will fail. And people will fall short. And husbands will forsake wives. And wives will forsake husbands. And friends will forsake friends. But the Scripture points us to one who will never leave and will never abandon. And that is why our hope rests in Him. And if your hope is on anything else, be ready to be let down. If your hope is in a relationship, your hope will not last. If your hope is in your status, in your job, that's not going to last. If your hope is in your stuff, it's going to fade, the Scripture says. The only place in which we can truly place our hope is in Jesus Christ our King. It's in the groom who will never forsake His bride. It's in the one who will never set your safety aside for His own. The one who lays down His very life so that you might have life. As messed up as you and I are, as much as we're going to fail, God's love and grace for us is intact. And that is the great hope that the Gospel gives us. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, for the picture we have here of one who cowered in fear and yet we're reminded of one who did not. We're reminded of how Abraham and Isaac and all these others in the Scripture, they have shortcomings, they have failures, and that's because they're not the true hero. The true hero is Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. God with us. And Lord, I thank You for that Word. Lord, I pray for those right now who feel isolated and distant from You. Perhaps some because... They have sinned, and in their sin, Lord, they are, they are moving towards Egypt. Perhaps they are there. Lord, I thank You that Your call to them to repent and to have faith is sufficient. Lord, that there's no one who can run so far that they're out of Your reach. Lord, I'm mindful that there are those as well who feel distant and alone and isolated, not because of their sin, but because of the sin of others, because of suffering, because of tragedy. Lord, I pray that they would feel the comfort of Your grace and Your mercy and the promise of Your Word and Your Son, Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I thank You that we can rest eternally in the knowledge of our Savior who laid down His life that we might have life and that we might have eternity and a new heaven and a new earth. And Lord, I plead with You for those who don't have that, for those who are walking through life in their own strength, but not in dependence on You. Those who feel they can just try to be good enough, but Lord, we will never be good enough. We need the promise of the Gospel. We need repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray that they would come to see that. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.